This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Do you have any close friends who you think are snobs? Yes, and I think they're kind of funny, some of them, you know. <laughs> but they're always so serious. Once Valentino I was with on his yacht, I'm name dropping, but it's a good story. <laughs> And we pulled in and they, we had dinner and with other people. And the waiter said to Valentino, water with bubbles or without? And he went, <gasps> bubbles make you fat. <laughs> and he was not kidding. And I've never had bubbled water since. Oh, I want for you to have some bubble water. No, it tastes no, so no, good. No, 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 thank you. <laughs> I don't want to be bloated, as they say in Baltimore. <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. When John Waters opens his door, he is wearing a flower print suit, pink, purple, and yellow flowers reminiscent of Monet, with red polka dot socks. And inside his Manhattan apartment, there is original art on nearly every wall, ornate candelabras hanging by the fireplace, and a small, fluffy white dog lying underneath the table who doesn't move at all. Is that a fake animal over there? Yes, it's fake. Okay. Uh, Oh, God, yes. Yes. I was like, that doesn't seem like a natural sleeping position. (laughs) (laughs) Really? It isn't? Oh, yeah, it's looking the other way, though. It would have turned around if it was alive. John Waters, of course, is the writer and director of the cult classics Pink Flamingos, Serial Mom, and his biggest mainstream success, Hairspray. He's been making movies since the 1960s, and he also has a touring one-man comedy show, performing live across the country to sold-out audiences. I think of John Waters as a provocateur with manners in real life, but his work is famously perverse, whether in his movies or in his debut novel that came out earlier this year, Liar Mouth, A Feel-Bad Romance. This novel is an incredibly dirty romp that was so raunchy at points that when I was reading it on a plane, I had to put the book down because I felt too embarrassed to be reading it in public. The book's main character, Marcia Sprinkle, is a criminal and a liar. But like many of the characters in John Waters' universe, her backstory makes her more complex. My women characters are better than my men characters, I think. Maybe, maybe. So uh, Marcia had a reason to be as crazy as she was. She did have a terrible thing happen to her and got pregnant, you know, and in a really awful way. So at the same time, 
you know, I always, Ricky Lake's a good friend of mine, and she has done all these documentaries about the miracle of birth. And I said to her, oh my God, when I saw that documentary, I said, don't let your children see you have birth in a bathtub in your bedroom. Are you insane? They'll be in shrinks for the rest of your life. So, so Ricky, I always say to her, birth is shameful. Just to, just to kid her to make her crazy because I don't believe that. But I don't, you know, when I read that people give birth and the father eats the placenta and stuff, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's uh, it, too far for John yeah, Waters. <laughs> yeah, it is. And to me, I don't get why you'd have natural child. To me, why didn't you just, why would you want it to hurt? I don't know. So to me, I have never given birth obviously um so at the same time it's such a blasphemy for a woman to be against that and everything and i think i was being a reactionary to ricky lake in a humorous way because i had to watch that whole movie of her giving birth and i said this is like freddy krueger for a gay man that we have to watch people give birth for 90 minutes um, I'm going to tell you something, and it might shock you. When I was, I had my second baby, and it was a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. The first one was a C-section. And I noticed in the corner of the room, there's this like big mirror, and I didn't know what it was. And then when the baby was coming, they said, do you want to watch? I could watch this child come out of my own body. But did you? I did. Yeah. Well, that's to it, me when I got a colonoscopy, like... they said, do you want to watch? <laughs> no. Why do I want to go on a fantastic voyage up my asshole? No, I don't want to watch. Why would you ask me that? But I can see that in a way. That's a different thing. You see the first but you know, you, entry. I'm so surprised. I think that you would be very curious about seeing your colon. No, not really. <laughs> not at this stage. Maybe in my... 20-year-old colon, not my 76-year-old one. <laughs> if I'm, it's not my time for a close-up in that department <laughs> without retouching. <laughs> um, for the most part, when you were writing this, were you alone or were there people Always in the alone. room? Always alone. I never write with anybody in the room. They can be in the house, but they know not to come in. And my favorite line ever that I always use to everyone I know is Ann Tyler's a friend of mine. And when she won the Nobel Prize, she doesn't give interviews much. Well, the Baltimore Sun knocked on her door and she answered and said, excuse me, I'm in the middle of writing a sentence. <laughs> I think it's the funniest line I ever heard. So I always say that if anyone comes in, I mean, my friend always says, <laughs> says, I know you're in the middle of writing a sentence, but <laughs> we need milk, you know, that kind of thing. So um, no, people know not to call me then. And do you like read sections out loud to yourself to get the rhythm and laugh yep. out loud? Like, is Sometimes it I do. And also I handwrite everything. I write by hand. So when it finally gets to the stage, which is the second or third draft to give to my assistants, um, three of them who type, they can sort of read my side Twombly handwriting, mm -hmm. but I make a tape of it so they can listen as we go along. I burn those tapes. Nobody hears the tape because then I do the audio book later. Yeah. But that way I can tell if I'm using the same word twice, I can, I can hear the rhythm of it. And I always did that with movies because I would just play every part say the dialogue. So I do do that. Yeah. That helps me though hear how it's going because I always want it to sound like I'm telling you a story. No matter, it might take seven drafts, but I want it to sound like I just made it up right then when you're listening to it. And on those tapes that you burn, are you like cracking up when you get no, to the funny parts? sometimes I do. Once in a while I do, then it's a really good joke. <laughs> <laughs> if I can make myself laugh, that's the first audience, yeah. And then I always go through with my staff, we're three generations of different age women. Mm, like what ages? Uh, 30, 40-something, and 60. Uh-huh. And... Um, 
And I asked them, like, you know, all right, when we go through it, they're my sensitivity readers. And they, they're good at it, you know, and, and they bring up points that are good. But then I ask each one, like, what was the most hideous thing, do you think? And the one that everybody says is her favorite line. Three different people have said that even God thought she was a cunt. <laughs> And that's a sensitivity editor. I might reject that line, but after you read the whole book, maybe not. Maybe not. This is the kind of taboo storytelling that John Waters really revels in. He loves to shine a light on the worst of us, but rarely to ridicule, more as a reminder of how gloriously sinful we can be. He was raised Catholic. His father wasn't Catholic, but his mother, Patricia Ann, made sure he went to Sunday school. What was your mother's personality like? <laughs> My mother, when she saw Serial Mom, she said, that is me. Huh. <laughs> um, really? <laughs> no, she wasn't that. I, I mean, my mother, we called her Queen Elizabeth. She was very, she taught me good taste, you know. She, my favorite thing she used to say is, fools' names and fools' faces always appear in public places. So at her funeral when I spoke, I said, sorry, Ma, I really violated that one. <laughs> she thought your name should be in the paper when you're born, when you die, when you get married. None of those things did I follow. <laughs> she was great. I mean, and both my parents, I'm very lucky, they were horrified by what I did. Thank God they don't have to read this. I would really be uptight to hand my parents this book. <laughs> My father doesn't know what analingus week is. I, I, does he even know what that is? Has it ever entered his consciousness? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. I know my mother, but I don't know. Because once I gave him this book that I did, it was um, an art book. And I had this art piece that I did called 12 Assholes and a Dirty Foot. And I, I said, I want to dedicate the book to you all. She said, oh, that's nice. I said, there's one thing. And she said, nothing you can do with shotguns anymore. Then I gave him the book and then I didn't hear from him. I didn't <laughs> hear from him. And I caught, and there was silence. And she said, why? Why would you do something like that? So it felt bad. I shouldn't have given it to her. <laughs> so just dedicate I'm, it without without yeah. making it well no then she would have looked through it I taped the two pages shut with a <laughs> post-it and she violated it and opened it well that's what you get that's what you get you if really you snoop did? around yeah I told her don't look at this I warned her so why would you it used to be in the old days they'd look through my drawers and then they stopped because they found stuff they didn't want to know yeah. that's why they never asked me if I was gay they thought the answer was worse <laughs> But I made multiple maniacs in their house. Desperate mm -hmm. living, the bedroom, the baseball comes through. That's my mother's bedroom. They were supportive. I mean, they hated the movies, but they were amazed that I could do them. I was that driven to do it. So they respected that. I was lucky that they didn't try to stop that. Uh -huh. They never said, don't make these movies. Even when I was getting arrested and it was, no one said they were good. There were humiliating reviews in the newspaper. Yeah. I'm, I've wondered about that, like you... Your discipline as a maker alongside your delight in rebelliousness, like, do you, are there like two parts of you that feel intention? No, they're not intention at all, but that's my dad. My dad taught me responsibility and business uh -huh. and how to be organized and how to have a plan and maybe how to have a backup plan. We just had very, very different product. He 
started Product. a company <laughs> that went on to be very successful. And my niece runs it. My my brother who died ran it first. And now his daughter runs it. Very successful. And it's fire protection equipment. Uh-huh. And so he sold that and I sold shock. Uh-huh. You know, it's the same thing. And he... He liked talking to me about business, how the movie business worked, and he was amazed that I figured all that out and everything. But that's how we could relate. Um, I, fire protection equipment, what does that mean? It means, well, in the beginning, it was fire extinguishers. You know, uh-huh. you have to have one in your house. But that now it's big, you know, systems and warehouses, everything, you uh-huh. know? And, uh, but when we were young, every time we'd hear a siren, we'd jump in the car and go to people's houses on fire to watch, and it would be exciting. It was like I felt close to my dad watching neighbor's house burn down because he would go to see it, you know. And I don't think he was a pyromaniac. I hope not. But um, we did go to watch. We'd be eating dinner and hear the volunteer fire siren go off. So we'd jump in the car, and we were fire engine chasers. The whole family would do it. That's, I didn't know that. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> And um, did you ever see like suffering that was from a you fi- wish no? I never pulled up where families were running out of the house on fire. No, I did not see that. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the whole family would jump in the car. Yeah. And <clears throat> did he help you when you were figuring out the business side? When you were just starting? Well, he lent me the money, mm-hmm. and I paid him back with interest. And he was so shocked. And I think it was the only person that ever of the investors that I raised hoped I would not pay him back so the career would end and I wouldn't ask him again. (laughs) (laughs) So he was disappointed when I paid him back. But when I would rent halls in the beginning, I would rent the place and my brother would come get all the money and then he'd take it home to my dad and they, you know, they, they would help me get the money out of there. All those hippies didn't steal it. (laughs) (laughs) The Marsha's in your fan base. Yeah. Yeah. No, we didn't have any marshes. We didn't. We didn't. And I like, do you feel like, how do you think acquiring wealth has changed the way you think about or like feel aligned with outlaws and rebels in America right now? Well, I say in my show, when I was young, I wanted to burn the Bank of America down. Now my money's in there. But I'd still like to burn it down because they run the bank really badly, I think. I gave all my um, my huge art collection that I've collected for years to the Baltimore Museum. Uh And so um, has it changed me? Nothing happened overnight. It happened very gradually. The career went up and down. For a few years when I made Hollywood movies, yeah, I got real money and I bought a house and an apartment and everything. And I went through what you have to do to get that money too. And I don't have any complaints about it. What do you mean went through? Well, if they give you that amount of money to make a movie, they're going to give you notes. You're going to go through a test screening. They want it to make money. I always wanted to make money. I always thought the films were commercial. And weirdly enough, they all were. The difference was it took a long time to make the money back. But they're still all in print. They're still all playing. They still come out. And even the early ones had an audience. Mm-hmm. I didn't have critical res- support, but... The audiences always came, even if it was in, like I would rent a church hall and have the premiere of Multiple Maniacs or Pink Flamingos, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 8, 10, and midnight. Uh-huh. They all sold out. The audience was great, you know. Uh, so it wasn't like I felt ignored yeah. ever, but I did learn how to do it, and I went through with New Line Cinema in the very, very beginning. I got Variety when I was 14. So... um I learned the business. I learned how to fight in it. I learned about what expenses are, how it's hard to get the money, even if you make money. Uh-huh. Bob Shea used to always say to me, how do you make friends with the accountant? 
which I always did. I still <laughs> send Christmas cards to accountants from 30 years ago that I made friends with. Oh. And they were always furious because the accountants would say, say, whose dinner was this for in Cannes? And they'd say, that wasn't your film. They would tell me. <laughs> I love one way that you have described your work-life balance is that uh, you've said at least half of my dinners I don't expense. <laughs> no, I <laughs> don't. No, that just means you have a private life. <laughs> yeah. If all your expenses are not. Yeah. And I learned a long time ago from my accountant the clothes you can never deduct. Even though wearing crazy clothes gets me fashion work. Mm -hmm. But you cannot deduct clothes if you can wear them on the street. They can't have pockets. They can't. And I'd like to say, I'd like to see an IRS wear this suit. Good luck. <laughs> but still, I've learned business stuff, you know, how, how it works and everything. Yeah. So, um, and I am honest. If I spend 20 cents, I have a receipt and Where I give you, it to my accountant. Yeah. What's your system? Every day, my accountant comes twice a week and she gives the envelope and it's all the receipts that week, the bills and everything. So every receipt goes in. If it's a personal receipt, it goes in one envelope. If it's a business on another one, if it's one that gets reimbursed, a third envelope. Uh-huh. So, and I only got audited once and they said I had better records than General Motors. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they can I wasn't there because the, the, <laughs> the tax account I had at the time said, don't come. <laughs> they didn't want me there. So you must have three envelopes right now in the bag that you're carrying I have them right on my desk. Yeah. Yeah. That's so... I what. Um, and all the boarding passes, too, to print, so I make sure I get all those frequent flyer miles. Coming up, John Waters talks about tending to his circle of friends, who range from heiresses and business moguls to incarcerated people and petty thieves, including the one John told me about who inspired parts of his novel. I did have a friend that used to steal the stewardess's pocketbook. Really? Yeah. Wait, tell me how you found this out. Like, she told me. And my other friend said, <laughs> I was with her, and then we were about to take off, and they made an announcement. Someone has taken the flight attendant's pocketbook, and we're not taking off till we get it back. She looked over at her friend. She knew her friend did it. And then she didn't tell, and they did take off. We have been updating our Anthems of Change Spotify playlist with your new additions, and we've loved hearing from you about the songs that are keeping you going right now and the songs that have carried you through some tough times. A listener named Lena was inspired to share her song after listening to our recent episode with Lucinda Williams, who was one of her mother's favorite singers. When I was trying to pick out a song for my boyfriend to sing at my mom's funeral, she wrote, he reminded me of the last song he ever sang for us, and it was Lucinda Williams' Fruits of My Labor. I still can't get through five seconds of that song without a tidal wave of grief washing over me. We also heard from our former intern, Marty Harding, who said that she had to throw in her song, even if, in her words, it is so cliche. There's more than one answer to these questions, pointing me in a crooked line. And the less I seek my source for something, closer I am to find. Closer I am to find. 
Marty says that nothing hits home like shrieking, closer I am to find, yeah, at the top of her lungs. The song's popularity and consistency through the years, she wrote, is a reminder that I am not the first young person to feel listless. And then there's Amy, who wrote to us she's sandwiched between kids and elderly parents, plus husband, house, dog, not necessarily in that order, she added. Her go-to song, Midnight Radio, from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. You can email us and let us know what songs you turn to in moments of transition. Send them to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org, and we'll add them to our playlist. It doesn't have to be a new song. It could be an old one you're hearing in a new way. And you can check out our full Spotify playlist in the show notes, or just search for Death, Sex, and Money Anthems in Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. 
And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. I will tell you, John Waters makes you feel good. He likes talking and makes it feel like he likes talking to you, which makes you feel interesting, like he's your friend. So it makes sense that he has a lot of friends. He makes them easily, and he takes good care of them. I don't trust people that don't have old friends. Something's the matter with them if they don't. Uh-huh. And... They last longer, even than your family, because they're your age. Hmm. When you think about your closest friends, mm-hmm. um, like your closest, most intimate circle right now, are they fellow creative people who make art, or are they people? One, yes, they are, but one is my best friend, Pat Moran. She's a casting agent, but I've known her forever and ever, and she did The Wire. She does a million stuff. Uh Dennis Dermody, my dear, dear friend, who's a, a horror film buff, and he also has a cinema blog. And the Fremonts up here, there he used to work for Andy Warhol. They both did. Uh, yes, they are, but I have lots of other ones that are not in mm-hmm. the arts at all, and they mostly all live in Baltimore. How did your old friendships shift during the period of isolation? They didn't shift at all. Um, did I still... Uh, we talked all the time, and you know, sometimes I don't see him all the time anyway. Uh-huh. If we're both working, I'm in a different city. The only thing that shifted is I didn't have my annual Christmas party, and I still am not having it. I don't know, 200 people in my house without masks, drinking, I'm not ready for it. Will mm-hmm. I ever have that party again? I don't know. And that, to me, the one I had in Baltimore was my Baltimore party. There were people there that have helped me or I've known for my whole life. I only see, I'd say, half the people there that one time a year now at the party. And I know I'll probably never see them again. We're still in touch, but I'll miss that, but I ain't dying for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to have, mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm not comfortable for that yet. Will I go back to that? I hope, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Are you f- making phone calls to a wider circle of people than you did when you knew you would see them at a dinner or at a party? Hmm. No, I still see in each place I live the same people. When, even during the pandemic, we would meet because my building in San Francisco wouldn't even let you have gas. We would get, order pizza and eat in the park uh-huh. or on the roof. Yes, I still stayed in touch with my core of, let's say, 25 closest people. I was always, I even saw them during the pandemic. I love that you have 25 close people. That's a lot of well, close people. Well, I mean, if you're saying, Probably. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. they mostly your age? Some are younger, mm-hmm. but mostly, or between, you know, it's a good question. I think they're varied in age, but certainly, mo- I mean, like I went to see my oldest high school friend that I hadn't seen in a long time the other day. 
in a retirement community. It was so weird to go in there, you know? Um, so uh, I do stay in touch. And if anything bad happens to you, I call. If you get a bad review, I call. I, if you go to jail, I definitely am your first visitor. <laughs> <laughs> I never don't come visit you if you're in jail. My mother used to say it was my junior league work. <laughs> uh, what was what was the retirement community like? The what? For, what was the retirement community like for you? One. Yeah, you know, I get ads for retirement communities that infuriate me, and I put them right in the shredder. How dare you? <laughs> Including the one my parents was in. Don't think you're getting me. <laughs> there is a certain ease. Well, I did. I don't know what I will. Eventually, you know. I mean, I did have. Someone I taught in prison, and I, he served 27 years for a double murder, and I got him out. He's doing great. And he said, the mm. only way I can ever repay you, if you're old, I'll carry you up the steps. <laughs> I remember that. I might take you up on that. Come on over. I'm on the first floor. <laughs> Have you felt that? You, I noticed you mentioned earlier your back. It's, it's, yeah, it, it is great. It, yeah. it, it hurt. Like, how are you... Um, feeling about the way your body is changing with age um you know my bad my dad had a bad back i got one otherwise you know i'm going to 10 cities this week i did five last week i have a 20 city christmas tour it's not like it's holding me back uh but sometimes yeah i'm 76 i'm not middle-aged i'm not 152 and people always say why don't you retire i think if i retire i might drop dead the first day Really? I don't know. Well, I don't know that. It's not just aging that John Waters doesn't relish. He makes the mundane details of living in a body seem grotesque. As he explored through his novel's main character, who absolutely hated all of the functions that keep you alive. I'm like Marsha a little. I resent that I have to have a bowel movement. <laughs> the only good thing about being dead. You never have to go through that again. Can you tell me why? Because you have no choice. I didn't think it up. Why do I have to do it? <laughs> Even sex, I didn't think it up. Why is that in me? Instinct. Well, I have no choice but to do things. Do you enjoy I, eating? Yes, but I wish I didn't have. I mean, you know, it's why do you have to eat? It's this whole thing that you have no choice over. You cannot really decide not to do that. Marsha has figured it out as much as she can. She only has little pellets that shoot out, so she doesn't even have to wipe. Mm -hmm. And she has no odor. She has no BO or anything. She has no odor in any way because she wants to smell like nothing. Uh, I thought the detail about not having to wipe was quite evocative. <laughs> well... <laughs> you eat the right kind of whole grain cracker and it's all taken care of. Well, and you, yeah, and I also think you should never, ever leave your house and do that. So even though when they talk about different kind of bathrooms, well, I think no one should ever go to the bathroom except when you're in your house in the privacy of your own home and train yourself. And if you can't do that, stay home. <laughs> when I see people go in the bathroom on the airplane, I think, God, how can you go in that room? You're so disgusting. So, even in first class, they're disgusting. <laughs> oh, so you, going back to, to bowel movements and your resentment <laughs> of bowel movements, um, the idea that you don't like something, having to do something that you didn't think up, like this idea of like, I yeah. don't want to be told to do something. Yes. Do you chafe at being told what to do? 
generally? I like to tell myself what to do. Yeah, that's not being it's told what to do by someone else. <laughs> um, it depends on the tone again. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, if, if I agree with it, fine. Um, yes, but not many people tell me what to do. Um, and, and writing a novel for the first time, knowing that you didn't have to cast it, knowing that you didn't have to find where you were going to shoot mm-hmm. that scene, did it allow you to be more wild? It allowed me to go into more detail about people's obsessions and how they feel and feelings. I didn't have to show everything. I didn't have to have them say it out loud to get it. So there was a lot more inner turmoil that I could deal with and develop and go even deeper into their obsessions. But all the people that are obsessed in Liarmouth believe they're normal. Mm -hmm. They all think they're right. They think they're on a mission and uh, few of them have humor about themselves. And that's always the kind of people that amaze me. Like, how could you go out looking like that? You, you know, <laughs> did you look in a mirror? But people look at me and think that. <laughs> and this is the last question, because I know you have to get to Fox News. Yes. Which I just, I, I love yes. this we'll transition. See if I, get out, I love right? this transition yeah, yeah. in your life right now. Um, uh, you use the word obsessions there, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like when is that kind of like when you think about what is this thing that this person can't let go of? Like what is that the organizing? Yeah, to me, it's like so interesting to me. Like, why are they so obsessed with that one thing? Why can they not do it another way? Why can't they see that it's unreasonable? And that is all people that are obsessed or cult-like behavior or people that are so driven into one way that they get detoured out of normal life or or normal emotions. And those kind of people always have fascinated me. Are you one of those people detoured out of normal life? No. Well, am I in normal life? It depends what that means. When I'm on tour, I always think, can I walk into the other, go outside for a minute where I'm not on TV or going into the next thing? But I don't live that life all the time. Uh Um, That is my normal life when I'm on a tour. So I think I live a normal life for me in my position and what I do in the world. I have worked 76 years to make it as normal. By that, I mean not causing me internal grief, Mm. a certain satisfaction. You've worked it out with yourself about what you expect can happen and what is realistic to believe in what's going to happen in that day. That is John Waters. His debut novel, Liarmouth, is out now. And you can see him perform this fall in a city near you. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azule and Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz. The rest of our team is Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Lily Clark. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePicks. That's P-I-C-S. You can see a picture of that weird fake dog in John Waters' apartment right there. And the show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Carrie Coffey in Charleston, South Carolina, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Carrie and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. 
And you know, I asked John Waters a few follow-up questions about that friend who steals flight attendants' pocketbooks, but I didn't get anywhere. Tell me about this friend. She's alive and well, so I don't want to libel her. But she's a piece of work. (laughs) (laughs) She was a true outlaw. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. (laughs) 